Every day in today's world, labels are placed. Whether it's a label placed due to your job, your ethnicity, or beliefs, we are label crazy as a society. When I was growing up, that's all I heard. I was unfit. I was a misfit. Bad. Destined for prison. I needed special ed. I was the worst behaved student teachers ever taught. But if I described myself, I'd say misunderstood above all. If you're hearing this, chances are that may have been you too. And it's so easy to accept those labels. More often than not, kids buy into it. Right now, as you hear this, whether you're a foster kid or not, you have two choices. Buy into the stigma placed on you or become greater than. I chose the latter. Welcome to The Launch. Welcome to The Launch by A Foster's Hope, a podcast made for those who have navigated the foster care system past and present. Our hope is that others' real-life stories of overcoming would launch you into newfound purpose, healing, and restoration for your life. Now, here's your host, Darren Morris. What's going on, family? Welcome to episode two of The Launch. My name is Darren Morris, and I'm your host. Today, I get the opportunity to do something special and share my own story. Now, I thought about this. Hey, should I have a co-host host my own show? Or should I just create a Shakespearean monologue and just tell my own story this way? I figured, hey, why not? I hope that my story would provide hope and healing to all the kids out there that are listening and that would push you into a perspective and launch you into new action, whatever that looks like. Hashtag more than a label. So I want to start off by placing you at Young Darren, six years old, in Yonkers, in a residential. And it was in that residential that I would experience my first instance of sexual abuse. Now, at the time, being so young, I didn't really understand the ramifications of how that would affect my life going forward. But I was abused by somebody there that was an older roommate of mine. Other experiences that I remember in the residential Really, the most was going into the visiting rooms, the visitation area, and waiting for my biological mom, who at that time had lost her rights and lost custody of me, who was supposed to come back. And we were beginning the process of reunification that so many kids long for. A lot of organizations aim to reunify kids and their biological parents. But that wasn't going to be my story because I remember waiting for my mother to show up. And then she would never show up. I remember the long walk right to that room and there would be toys and I'd play games by myself, board games by myself, waiting until we finally gave up hours. We might have had one of many visits, but at a certain time, the visits just stopped. So at that time, they began the process of trying to find a family for me to go. And that's when I would begin my transition to moving to Rockland County. Now, Rockland County, if you're from the city or from Westchester... Maybe a little bit less Westchester, but if you're from the city, Rockland sounds like another state, another country, when really it's only a 30-minute drive over the Tappan Zee Bridge. So I remember the time had come where I was moving to Rockland County, and I was going to go live with the Misa family, and, and the father had come to pick me up in his truck, and I literally remember the anxiety that I was feeling inside of, of uncertainty, of not really knowing what to expect not knowing if this was going to be a permanent place where I would be staying, where I would be living. I remember literally the song that was playing and that I can never get out of my head was Angel of Mine. I think by Brandy or Monica or something like that. And I remember just staring out the window in the truck, silent as could be, 
as that tape played, because back then it was tapes. And I moved in with that family in Rockland County, and they had two other boys, Josh and Jacob. And man, Jacob really changed my life because he was the first person in my life that I kind of let. Now, Jacob, he was my age. So we were the same age, six, seven-year-old boy that I began to connect with and, and build a relationship with. And and Jacob would end up being my best man and, and walking through different times of my life. While I was at the Misa family, I really struggled to to build trust with, with that family. I remember I was always in trouble. I was always in my room staring out the window. And mind you, I didn't have all negative memories there. There were some good memories because I was getting toys and things that I didn't have prior to, or at least have recollection of. I was beginning to experience those things. I remember a trip to Puerto Rico. I went on vacation with them and that turned out to be a circus in its own right. All that to say, when I was younger, I had a lot of issues. Um, And with that said, I ended up leaving the Misla household, whether it was they felt I wasn't ready. I probably wasn't because I didn't know how to deal with the issues that I was facing. So I remember one summer, I was sent and put into a respite home. And that's really where you just, like the parents decide whether or not they want to continue with the adoption process. End of the story, I didn't end up going back to the Misla household and they brought me back to the agency with my black bags. And they brought me to the agency. And I belonged to Abbott House at the time in New York, which was also in Westchester. And I met with a friend of the family who worked at Abbott House, but also went to the same church as the family I just left. So I went and I was in his office and his name is Jim Morris. And I remember we were having a conversation. I believe he was slotted to take me up to Poughkeepsie, um, where my next placement was going to be. And I remember having a conversation with him, and I believe it was it was June of 2001, and he was experiencing loss, and I was experiencing loss. It's it's crazy how some of these little minute details are so vivid in your mind. But I remember at the end of the conversation, he asked me, "Would you want to come live with me?" Because he himself adopted young kids. He had foster kids currently in his home. I knew his family. I knew his boys. So instead of going to another place of not knowing anyone or uncertainty, I said, yeah, sure, I'll go there. So I went to the Morris household. He ended up adopting me, I think, at the age of 12, if I remember correctly. Um, and as I grew up, I guess I began to let my walls down a little bit because there was somebody who taught me it was okay to put them down. When I think of Jim Morris, who would become my father, I think of a man who saved my life. I think of a man who gave me a chance at a better life. I think of a man who not only talked the talk, but walked the walk. And he preached the message of unconditional love. And, and don't believe while he adopted me that I didn't test him, that my brothers didn't test him. Man, we were destroying his house. Growing up, I don't know how many things I've broken, whether it was me putting holes in the wall or me and my brothers shoving couches through walls or me smashing a chandelier or flipping a, the dinner table over. And mind you, a lot of his kids are bigger than him, but that man changed my life. But there were some things that while he helped me healing, I couldn't let go of. Because outside of him, authority, I couldn't submit to any authority. In my eyes, you got to give respect to earn respect. It wasn't something that I just gave you just because you were an elder or you were in a position of power over me. And that's something that I tried not to have that mentality and just give people respect. But it's tough. It's always going to be tough. Growing up in the Morris household, going through 
school age and stuff like that, my teenage years, there was a lot of resentment that I had for adults, unresolved issues. And probably my biggest one was was just wondering why I wasn't good enough for my mom to want me back. Every birthday at around noon, or not noon, I'm sorry, 12 a.m., as soon as it struck November 21st, I would begin to cry, just wondering, one, what she was like, because I couldn't remember my young years when I was with her. I would cry wondering why I wasn't good enough, and I would never feel good enough. Even though Mr. Morris had brought me in, there was still something deep down in my heart where I felt I wasn't good enough. Now, throughout school, I was really, I didn't do a lot of fighting. I didn't do a lot of drugs and this and that. But when it came to teachers and authority, I had no respect. I got kicked out of, I think, three schools in, in only a couple of years. I remember they did the Scared Straight program that you see on TV where they bring young kids to the jails and, and inmates yell at them and try to scare them to... They're going to behave and stuff like that. And I want to say that, that that worked for me, but that wasn't my reality because my reality was the pain was so deep that it was going to take a little bit more than somebody who I didn't know yelling in my face. Another reason why I didn't feel good enough or why I felt disgusted within myself was because sexual abuse wasn't something that happened one time in Andrews Hall when I was six, seven years old, but it was something that would follow me. And I felt like, hey, maybe this was something that I deserved or something that it was just supposed to be my life. You don't really know what to make of it. And I remember an adult, and mind you, I was a teenager at this time, and most people would say, oh, well, you should have fought them off or this and that, but that's not reality. Because a lot of times you just freeze up and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond. And like, yeah, you can try and stop sexual abuse from occurring, but more often than not, that shock is paralyzing. Fear is paralyzing. And that happened to me in my young teenage years. Crazy thing is, the home where I was adopted in the Morris house, it happened to me there as well. And for some people, I'm breaking news right now because it was something that I buried within myself. But sexual abuse repeated itself in my life. So growing up, we're now entering my older teenage years, my young adulthood, stepping into being an adult. How would I begin to maneuver having experience such pain. And mind you, I kind of limited some of the details of everything that I've just shared. Because if I gave you the full picture of the full story, I think this podcast would be probably hours and hours. And not for nothing, my ADHD would not keep up with all the details. There's too much. Maybe I'll write a book. I probably won't. This will have to do. But the crazy thing is, as I grew up, I started thinking to myself, you know, I've always heard if you don't deal with your issues, then the only people that are going to suffer is your future family, your future spouse, your future kids. If you don't deal with your issues, that's who is going to end up dealing with those unresolved things. The relationships around you, whether it's friendships, romantic relationships, those are the people in your life that are going to deal with it. So current stage, I'm a father of two beautiful young girls, a four-year-old and a six-month-old today on the 30th of April, Jayliana and Daniela, and then obviously my beautiful wife, Arielle. And in my mind, my relationships with them are pretty normal. Well, probably not normal because we're a weird family, but they're not dealing with so much of my unresolved stuff. So I want to transition to kind of advice and talking to those kids who have experienced neglect, have experienced sexual abuse, 
have been broken, have been hurt, who are dealing with issues that they don't know how to resolve. So if I were to ask myself some questions, what helped me to heal? Well, it started with one person believing in me. And I was lucky to have that. But some of you may not have that. Which brings me to my next point. Let's say you don't have somebody to believe in you to to begin that process. I want to say to you, nobody will take care of you like you. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by nobody will take care of you like you? It took me reflecting in myself and looking within myself to say, no, I have all of these hurts, pains, issues, whether it was me being angry, me snapping at the the moment something goes off, the way that I didn't trust people, the way I responded to authority, that's me acknowledging, hey, I have these issues and I want to deal with these issues because I don't want to take them out on my kids when I have kids. Now, while I had somebody to believe in me, he could only do a small part and begin that process. And then after that, it was really up to me to say, no, I want to deal with these things. And when you get to that point, then you can make decisions. What is going to help me to deal with this sexual abuse thing? What is going to help me deal with the anger and the pain that I have? Because reality is, you may not always get answers of why this person left, why you weren't good enough, or any of those other things. Because there's still questions in my mind that I have that I wish I had wise to, that to this day, as a 28-year-old man, I haven't gotten. But at the end of the day, I had to look myself in the mirror and say, Darren, who do you want to be? As an adult, do you want to be a thriving adult who is somewhat emotionally stable, mentally stable? That can happen. But that begins with acknowledging what you need to work on. What is going to help me heal? For some people, therapy will help you. Seeking a mental health professional will help you. Seeking a an abuse counselor will help you. And I recommend those things. If you feel that talking to someone about it will help you, then please seek out that help. There's nothing wrong with seeking help. If anything, it's stronger to be able to be vulnerable and push yourself to that point of, no, I want to get better. So I'm going to seek someone that can help me get better. It's a lot easier to just bury things deep and deep down inside but that's not going to help you long term. That's not going to help your family. That's not going to help the relationships that you have around you. So what else helped me to heal? I talked about me looking myself in the mirror, but I would be a fool to not say my faith as a Christian has helped me. Because when I have felt like I wasn't good enough, like I didn't deserve love, God was there to show me that love. To tell me, no, you are good enough. Reading my Bible where he calls me a son and that I'm loved and seeing what he did on the cross for me. Because for me, at the end of the day, I'm not the best person. To me, I'm not worth someone else dying for. But in the gospel, that's what Jesus did. He died for me. Now for me, my faith helped me heal. And that's probably the only thing that's helped me heal within my sexual abuse. Because there's nothing that can take that away. And, and there's times where I still break down thinking about it. There's times where I still feel disgusting. But it's remembering that love, remembering who I am, remembering that I'm stronger than those abusers. Why? Because I didn't become that abuser, but I overcame that experience and it made me stronger as a person. And guess what? To this day, I will defend my girls 
with all that I have from any abuse that I can possibly do. It's made me stronger. Do I have my weak moments? Yes, I do. I think we all do. So seek help if, you, if that's your avenue. What advice would I give a young person in foster care right now? Who I would ask you a question. For all those that may be listening, who may be in the foster care system or you're just aged out or you just got adopted or a new placement, whoever you may be that's listening and this applies to, what advice would I give a young person in foster care right now? Well, I would pose a question to you. I would say, who do you want to be in one year from now, three years from now, five years from now, maybe even 10 years? You can go that far. But who do you want to be? In your career, in your mental space, in your identity, who do you want to be? And I ask you that because if you begin to think about that, then you can ask yourself the next question. Well, how do I get there? And the most important part of those questions is going to be your mental space, your heart. Who do you want to be? You want to be a thriving adult who's emotionally, mentally stable. Because if you're not mentally stable, then you're just going to ruin the things around you that may be stable. Now, mind you, I'm just speaking from my experience. I'm not a mental health professional or anything like that. I'm just telling y'all what helped me. And I hope that these questions help you because I am very big on reflection. And it's reflection that helps me to constantly strive to be greater than I was today, greater than I was yesterday, whether it's in my talents or my gifts, things that I love, my passions. Reflection is key in your career. It's key. In your mental space, it's key. Without reflection, I don't believe there can be growth. Again, no one is going to take care of you like you. So now I want to speak to prospective foster parents. And if I were to give you some advice, what would that be? I would say patience. Patience is a big one. Especially if you're getting a kid who's been through something. Now, when you have a baby, that's great. But a teenager, and the thing about my dad was he didn't want the babies. He wanted the ones that have gone through stuff. And mind you, if you heard the first episode, I think I told you, it's about like 16, 17, 18 of us. I can't even keep track that my dad has adopted and my mom. But patience, because we're going to test you. We want to see how long you're going to be there. We want to see if this is going to be a permanent placement for us. We want to see is unconditional love really a thing that we can believe in? Because a lot of people can talk the talk, but they don't always walk the walk. And a lot of times they get into it without really understanding what it's going to take. But the number one thing is patience. If I gave you another thing, do your research. Do your research on things that are impacting kids in the foster care system. Um, some of the reasons. And a lot of times when you're... When you receive a kid 
or are looking for one, I believe that you see their profile to some extent, um, where they've been, where they come from, et cetera, et cetera. So do your research on, hey, there was trauma there. So do your research on trauma. Do your research on abuse. I think the biggest thing with my dad is that he never gave up. No matter the things that I said to him, and trust me, there was plenty of conversations like, you're not my dad. There was plenty of conversations where he was getting cussed out left and right from me and my brothers. I already told y'all we destroyed his home and he would have to repair them. We didn't repair it. He probably should have made us repair it, but he never gave up. And that allowed me to put my wall down. And if you're in that place where you've got a young teenager or older teenager or even a young kid who's acting out because even as a young boy I acted out don't give up be patient there will be breakthrough man I want to thank y'all for checking out this episode it was a little different because again it was a lot of me just talking to myself but I hope that this inspires you whether you're a foster kid currently you were a former foster kid or a prospective foster parent or maybe a professional just trying to get perspective from a former foster kid himself i want to thank y'all for checking out the launch by a foster's hope you could check out our page at a foster's hope on instagram on facebook you can go to our website a foster's i love y'all and i appreciate y'all i'm out